I invite you to this time to turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 John. The book of 2 John. You'll find that on page 1905 in your pew Bible. Beginning at verse 1, we will read the entire book of 2 John. Hear now the word of God. The elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not I only, but all who know the truth, because of the truth, which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take him into your house or welcome him. Anyone who welcomes him shares in his wicked work. I have much to write to you, but I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your chosen sister send their greetings. Thus far, the reading of God's word from 2 John. Let us pray that this time of worship may be a blessing to us. Let us pray. Almighty God, as we have heard your word from the book of 2 John, we ask that it may bless our hearts, that it may mold our minds, that we may will your will, that we may speak your truth, that we may do your calling in this world. We ask that you be with your servant, help him to speak truth and light, and that your people may be moved to live in your name. This we ask in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. The book of 2 John, 13 verses long. And it's kind of weird, isn't it, when we read something so short. We think, oh, this is a chapter. Oh, this is, this is just a part of what we're talking about. And especially now that I'm up here behind the pulpit, you're probably thinking, well, we were probably going to do like 2nd and 3rd John, but he decided only doing 2nd John instead. I know, I have a reputation of having you read entire chapters. I get that. But I figured we'll focus in on 2nd John today. But it's interesting that we're reading a letter written 1,900 years ago from a guy usually around the area of Ephesus, which is now Turkey, writing to a church or a person somewhere out there. We don't really know. 
we're reading someone else's mail. <laughs> you ever had that before? Where you got to the mailbox and you open it up and you reach in, you grab a letter and you go, wait a second, this isn't for me. Maybe it's for, I don't know, if you were little, your dad or your mom, or maybe it's for your brother or your sister and you're just nosy and you need to read it anyway. Or reading someone else's emails sometimes. You know, you get an email that's supposed to be to someone else and they sent it to the wrong inbox and it ends up in yours instead. It's a common occurrence in our house that we end up getting mail for the person that's a block down from us or that's supposed to be on the street behind us. You know, wait a second, this isn't for us. Let's, you know, we'll go walk it down or something like that. Put it back in the mailbox so that the mailman realizes his error and goes, oh yeah, I probably shouldn't do that again. But the Holy Spirit inspires John to write this letter to, as it says here, the chosen lady and her children. Now, many scholars have asked the question, who is the chosen lady and who are her children? Is he speaking about a certain person and maybe the, the kids under her care? The, there's been speculation that maybe this is a deaconess like Dorcas and maybe this is an orphanage. But more often than likely, or more often and likely, this is probably a church. Again, we're talking about the Roman times, persecution is around, and when you speak of a church to a chosen congregation, let's just say if the letter carrier, even the letter carrier or the messenger wasn't exactly of great repute, your letters might get opened before they reach the destination. So John here writes in code. We could probably understand this as to the church or to the congregation to the church and her congregation. And John here focuses in on a couple of key words: truth and love. Now, when we ask the question here, what does John mean by this? I mean, John is also is quite famously known as the apostle of love. He says the word love many, many times. In fact, it's, I did a word search to my detriment because I was trying to figure out, you know, how, does the word, how is the word love used in the Bible? And I ended up with over 740 references to the word love in Scripture. Many of those, in fact, almost half of those, are either attributed to John or colleagues right around John. But when we talk about the word love, it's an age-old question, isn't it? It's a question that the world has been asking for many years. Shakespeare asks it in his poems. Probably most famously, the songwriter Hathaway wrote, What is love? Elvis wrote, can't help falling in love. Sinatra had his whole song, L is for the way you look at me, did that whole thing. You have Barry White, can't get enough of your love. Dirty Dancing had, I had the time of my life, which talks about love. We even indoctrinate our children. Frozen, love is an open door. We've so politicized it that now we have this, well, love is love. I'm sure many of you were probably around during the era of free love. I can't date myself on that one because I'm not old enough to know that reference, right? 
But even then, the world talks about what is love. But in verse 6 here in 2 John, the command is that we walk in love. What does the Bible say that love is? If we go back to the Old Testament, Lamentations tells us that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and his mercies never come to an end. In the Song of Solomon, we have the bride that says, your love is better than wine. In our passage this morning from John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But I think John still clarifies it the most from 1 John, where he says in chapter 4, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest to us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. I know I just read a short paragraph there, but if we could count all the different times that love is mentioned. And it's used as an object. It's used as a verb. It's something that God is, and yet it's something that we're called to do. It's something that is supposed to be made complete in us. But John takes a step back in 2 John. And in verse 5, he says, this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. This reiterates the words of Christ from John chapter 14, verse 15. I know you'll know it because it's the cadet verse that we grew up with. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. And as we have heard from the beginning, his command is that we walk in love. You see, but how do we get there? How do we get to love? And what are these commandments? What are we supposed to talk about? What are we supposed to walk in? Well, part of the answer is going to be tonight as we hear a sermon about faith. But part of that, and I'll give you a little sneak peek here, part of that is you have to know the truth. Because if we don't define the word correctly according to the truth, we don't know what the command is, and therefore we don't know what love is. So we can't ask or answer the question, what is love? You see, when we start to thwart things or we have a culture or a world that says, well, you know, does the Bible really say? 
And then you go from, well, does the Bible really say to, I mean, it's just a book written by a bunch of guys a couple thousand years ago or even longer. Does that really even hold water today? And it becomes shoved off to the side. I mean, you don't really believe what people have said. I mean, you can't trust everything out of anybody's mouth, right? I mean, they'll say one thing and do another. You can't even trust your neighbors anymore, right? How can I trust somebody I've never met 2,000 years ago from a country that doesn't even exist anymore? And you call it truth. What the world fails to see, what the world, what men who love darkness fail to see, is the light that's in front of them. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is a giant acrostic that takes every letter of the Hebrew alphabet and has section after section after section. If you look in your Bible, you'll actually see that there'll be little Hebrew letters that's been subdividing everything. And it talks about how the law of God is loved and adored and is to be treasured because it's the truth. You see, if the world tries to subvert that which is true, they have no definition of love. That's why they keep asking the question, what is love? That's why they keep using it. Well, you know, love is love is love is love is love. I can't prove it scientifically because I can't observe it. I can maybe boil it down to, well, you know, love is this perceived synapse in the brain that gives me some sort of attraction to someone. And they try and explain away by means of biological or chemical processes, by something that we can observe, and well, this is what love is. So love becomes a feeling. <clears throat> love becomes an emotion. Love becomes, as Barry White says, something I can't get enough of. But the problem with that short-sighted view of the world is that because it's not based in the truth of what God has spoken and what God has said and what God has given to his people to write down, then when we talk about love in the Song of Solomon, we talk about love in John, or we talk about love in Lamentations, or we talk about love and how God loves his people in Isaiah or in Hosea, and we have these wonderful demonstrations of how God loves his people with a steadfast love. The world looks at it and goes, what is that? That seems oppressive. You say you have a God of love, and yet he gives you ten commandments? You, you, you say you have a God of love, and yet he says, 
He, he binds you in this box. But if you love something, shouldn't you just set it free? Isn't that what love is? Then you have to ask the question, if a child is about to burn their hand on the stove, is it loving to just sit back and watch? Or is it loving to smack their hand away and go, you're going to burn yourself? Is it loving for a child, or we'll make it a more extreme example, is it loving for a child to open an oven that's on and let them climb inside? Or is it loving to pull them away from that and say, that's hot, what are you doing? It makes no sense for you to climb into an oven that's on. You see, Scripture is written by a God who knows everything, the past, the present, the future, and gives it to us who don't know everything so that we may organize our lives according to the truth. That's why this isn't a new command in verse 5. It's not a new command. It's the one that we had from the beginning. And God comes down to Adam and says, I give you this garden. Work it. Till it. Make this garden a beautiful place. A sanctuary. Where I can come and walk in the cool during the day. Fill the earth. Subdue it. That man and God may have fellowship in this glorious creation. God doesn't create Adam and just sends him on his way. God doesn't take the world and wind it up like a clock and just let it run. Saying, well, this is just the natural order of things. I've got to go hands off on this one. But through his providential care, he talks and speaks to us. He breathes into us. You see, when we take a look at what the truth is, and we define our lives around the truth, answering the question is simple. What is love? It's not love is love. It's God is love. God is love. And how do we demonstrate this love? Verse 6. You walk in obedience to his commands. We become like him more and more every day. We walk in a manner that is in accordance with the internal change that has happened to us. Remember, we're not talking about the Bible here devoid of the New Testament. We're talking about a Bible who gives the truth of Christ himself. And says, look, 
Christ came into this world to save you from your sins. Christ came into this world so that you are no longer in that area of bondage. But you were bought with a price. And that is the truth. So now walk in love. In fact, Paul corroborates this in 1 Corinthians 16. In verse 14, he states there, Let all that you do be done in love. Christ says in John 13, By this all people that you know you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. You see, love should be the definition of being a Christian. Not according to the world's definition, but according to Scripture's definition. And so when we hear love is love, well, you know, love is love, is love, is love, is love, is love. It's like asking someone, well, that depends on what the word is, is. No. When you have a clear definition of what the truth is, you have a clear definition of what love is, which pushes you in a clear direction for your life. John continues in a second John here in a specific for that. He says in verse 7 that many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Back then there was a Gnostic sect of this Christian understanding of what the world was. But we hear about Paul talking about Judaizers, people who took strict adherence to the law as this is what we must do in order to be saved. It's not belief in Christ, but it's following this laundry list of things to do. And instead, John is fighting the opposite argument. Instead of the legalistic Judaizers, he faces these people that say, Christ didn't really come in the flesh because the flesh is evil. He came in the spirit. And so we must be spiritual. We must have this ethereal essence about us. I mean, it doesn't really matter what we do with our bodies. It doesn't really matter how we live with our lives. Because after all, that's all evil anyways. We need to have a free view of what it means to be a Christian. To just let it all go. Because it doesn't really matter. John says, any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. I don't think there's a stronger condemnation in Scripture. Yeah, you know what Christ was? You know what Christ is? You know what Christ is going to be? Yeah, this person is the Antichrist. God is love. Yeah, this person isn't love. This person is actually hate. This person wants to, the Christ wants to save you. This person wants to condemn you. The word Antichrist here, or Christos is one of the strongest condemnations that is used in Scripture. 
how are we to treat these people, according to John? Well, don't take them into your house. Don't welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. You don't show hospitality to these people. Why? Because, well, this is something we really don't understand in our culture nowadays. But back in the Roman times and in the Greco-Roman era, hospitality was shown to traveling teachers. Hospitality was expected. In fact, when we just read earlier, and this is something that is very interesting that we see throughout a consistency of Scripture, is that remember in Sodom and Gomorrah when the gentlemen come to the village square, Lot comes and says, no, come into my house. Stay with me. Let let me show you hospitality. Let, Let me bring you in. Now, we don't know what these men were doing, if they were just standing there, or maybe they were saying something, or... But there was a, a clear welcoming by Lot saying, welcome. No, 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 no. You don't need to stay out here. We don't want you traveling or being in tents where it's not safe or anything like that. Come with me. I will provide lodging. I will provide food. It won't be a problem. And so you see Lot being on the side of these men. Well, that consistency actually worked its way even now into the Greco-Roman era. Even now, if you go to Israel or Turkey, there are actually inns for people that show up that don't know anybody. But if you know somebody or have friends or are relatively understood in that place or you know, in that region, nobody has an inn, nobody has a hotel because you just stay at a friend's house or you stay at someone who's a distant relative. The hospitality shown here is an acquiescence to what these people teach. And since it is falsehood, since it is a lie, verse 8 tells us we are to watch out, be on guard, look out for what's happening. Do not have the wool pulled over your eyes. People have debated over the second part of that sentence, too. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Or as it says here in the NIV, sorry, I have two different translations going on. Oh, it is translated the same way. Okay, I like that. But when you read this here, when you see that it's translated the same, even translated the same way, that you will be rewarded fully, that you do not lose what you've worked for. There are people that say, ah, see, you can lose your salvation. That's what's really going on here. Watch out that you, do not are, that you are not deceived, that you do not stray, that you do not get ahead of yourself. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in in the teaching of Christ does not have God. You see, it's a wandering. It's someone who has not adhered to the truth. It's someone who is not walking in love but is walking their own path. That's what we're supposed to be on the lookout for. 
That's what we're supposed to be watching out for. That's what we're supposed to be doing as the people of God, walking in love, saying, no, come back to the path. If everything we do is to be done in love, then even those around us must be told what is love. And that is, if we love him, we will keep his commandments. There is an outward manifestation of an inward reality. A good tree will produce good fruit. A bad tree will produce bad fruit. So Christian, here is the question that we must ask. What kind of tree am I? Where is my heart? Where have I built up treasure? Do I really, truly believe in love? Or is the world just everything I want? You see, these deceivers were saying, yes, you can have the label, but you can just do what you want, too. You can have the name of Christian because you like these people and they're nice and there's a nice group and you, you don't have to worry about it. There's churches from place to place you can go and you can stay in and not a problem. But I mean, it's nice to be part of the guilds, too. It's nice to be able to, you know, walk down the street and, you know, go eat the cheaper food that was sacrificed to idols. It's nice that, you know, we can just, you know, I mean, I don't really have to go to church if I don't want to because, you know, I know I'm in Christ and that's not a problem. You see... the inward reality is such that we have been renewed by Christ. And if you believe, if you desire, if you want that reality, then the natural fruit of that is following the commandments. Now, that's not to mean that this is something easy. I'm not trying to make light of this. I'm not trying to say that, well, you know, obviously, if you're a Christian, you're going to follow the commandments, and, you know, that's just the way life is going to be. It's be hunky-dory. No, it's not. There will be struggle. There will be suffering. There will be problems. There will be things that we still don't comprehend and understand. That's why it's not, well, you know, just live in love. But we are called to walk in love. We are called to journey in love. At the end of the day, when all is passed away, these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love.
But if we just take that word and isolate it, we don't realize that love is a verb, that we're called to walk in it day after day, moment after moment. And how do we do that? It's not a new commandment. It's one that we've heard from the beginning. Walk in love. And so people of God, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, when we go from this place, from Sunday into Monday, from here in our nice congregation, hearing the word, reading the word, singing the word, praying the word, having intimate fellowship with our God, when we go from this place, Let us remember, we do not have a new command. We have one that we've had since the beginning. Walk in love. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, as we come before your throne once more this morning, we ask that you would give us the grace and mercy to walk in love. For, Lord, you demonstrated your love to us that while we were still sinners, that Christ died for us. And so, Lord, may we live that life, that love every day. And we do so according to your commandments. Let us draw nearer to you. Let us worship in your house together. Let us know the value of the world and the lives around us. Lord, may we treat those things around us as your gifts distributed to us. And let us look to you every day of our lives. This we ask, not in our own wants and desires, not in the world's definition of truth, but in the true understanding of love, in the name of Jesus Christ himself. Through the Holy Spirit we ask this, Lord. Amen.